This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, guys. Today, I've got a special guest on the podcast. Her name is Dr. Paula Price. So she is an author, a minister, speaker, and entrepreneur, and she's the founder of Price University. And how she was introduced to me, she was introduced to me as a 70-year-old black female conservative. And my immediate reaction was, wow, there's one of those that exists, right? That That's seemingly a unicorn. If you look at culture or if you just take a look around, we're, we're told that those types of people don't exist. But obviously, she is much, much more than what you would see just on the back of her baseball card. She's a wife. She's a mother of three daughters. She's a grandmother of two. And here's the thing. I really enjoyed my time with her because, uh, again, the way that she was pitched to me was that she's just a firecracker. There's no subject that is off limits. But obviously, she spends a lot of time talking about critical race theory. So in this conversation, we do talk a lot about race in America the culture around that critical race theory. We talk about the education system. We get into the Republican Party because she's actually an elected member of the party and different things like that and and kind of what we can do as parents as we move forward. But one thing I will say just from here from the beginning, this subject matter for today was very political and more cultural. And so you're going to hear some things in the podcast where it's like, wait a minute, like that's something that Kyle would probably disagree with. Why wouldn't he push back? We had a little bit of a limited time today, but also I was way more interested in talking about the things where Paul and I would have some agreement than the places where we would have disagreement. I I just felt like there was a lot of really positive things that we could talk about. And there's some other things like maybe if you read her book or listen to some of her speeches, you're going to see some things and hear some things that don't seem to really align with what we talk a lot about here at Undaunted Life. But again, that wasn't the point in today's show. So before anyone freaks out and goes looking and looking, oh, well, she said this or said that, I don't really care. You know, if we have further discussions in the future, maybe that's some things that we can get on. But I really, really enjoyed my time with her. We had a great time off air before and after the podcast. She seems like a genuinely amazing woman. She seems to be very, very interested in, you know, me personally and my wife and my kids and all those different things. Just a very, very warm conversation from a warm lady. And I'm just so glad that we had her on the show, but I won't keep her from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Dr. Paula Price, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. (laughs) Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. I've already complimented you for your great background. So worst case scenario, it's going to be one of the better looking interviews I've done. Obviously, and you're you're dressed to the tin, so I, I'm excited already. But the, the funny thing is whenever you first came on my radar, you were described to me as a conservative black woman. And the funny thing was, is I was like, I don't know that I know too many of those folks. And that's like, I I even made the comment. I was like, okay, she seems like a bit of a unicorn, but I know that that's, you know, prejudging an entire group of people painting with a broad brush, which you're not supposed to do. But I guess from my perspective and from a lot of people that would maybe listen to this, why is it so seemingly rare for an older black woman to actually be a conservative because I'm from Lawton, Oklahoma. I grew up in an incredibly diverse town. You know, I was used to all different races and and ways of speaking and cultural topics and all that. So I ran into a lot of, you know, Paula Price's in my day, but a lot of people, other places, they don't really run into that. So why is that so seemingly rare? Wow. That's a really loaded question, Kyle. I'm just starting hot from the beginning. 
I love it. First of all, in in the Tulsa, at least I've been told, there are two of us okay. that are recognized. And I'm talking about now active. I don't mean right. we vote or, or we have some sort of political ideology. So I'm told there are two of us, and I'm the latest one. I'm Johnny Come Lately, and I'm the one that's, you know, doing all kinds of things. And why is that? Many times my experience has been that Black people don't feel as if there is a place. We have the welcome mat, but we don't have the seat. We don't have that position where our thoughts are, are really entertained. And oftentimes, whether it's deliberate or not, whether it's accurate or not, you, you, you sit in these groups and you feel like you're some sort of accessory. Like I'm an accessory, mm-hmm. I, I'm just, I'm feeling the thing, or maybe I'm proof, you know? Now that is a feeling, and that feeling has to have some root in truth. I feel, personally, I feel that we are not accustomed to seeing each other beyond neighbors, beyond co-workers, etc. When you start talking in politics, you're now talking leadership. You're now talking influences, but you're also talking power. And that's a whole other ballgame. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I do tend to ease into my interviews, but we're just going to fire right away because I feel like it's going to work out. Um, I asked this question to another conservative commentator. He's from Ghana. He's immigrated to Canada and he's going to you know, be coming to America before too long. But this is a, a young black man who's a conservative. And I asked him a similar question that I'm going to ask you because you kind of brought it up a little bit when you said you're seen sometimes as an accessory. Are you ever worried about tokenism? Because you are such a unicorn that it does seem like it's something that somebody who has, you know, a political point they need to score is that, oh, let's bring in Dr. Paula Price because she's going to substantiate us because she's a black woman. And and that's that's a different type of racism. It's a different type of uh, a sinfulness, you know, sin of, you know, uh, preference of certain people over another. Are you worried about that at all uh, being used in that way? No, well, I don't worry about a whole lot of that, as, as you probably yeah. know by now. I don't worry about it. I am an elected official. They did elect me. If they elected me as a token, God bless them. You know, the New York subway has been running on tokens forever. Right. And they're all right. So if that's who yeah. I am, I'm okay with that. Because however way I get in the door, it does not define how I behave and what I bring through that door. So I'm not stuck on that. But if you ask me if that has come up, absolutely. And a matter of fact, I'm surprised because because um, I have been more warmly received than others, but I do know, I, I always walk away, if I could be honest, I, I walk away thinking they're really uncomfortable with me. And it's that mm. spirit of it, discomfort that I feel more than I think about the tokenism or, or any of those kinds of things. Now, I am respected because I've earned my right to be expected, to be respected. I'm an yeah. author. I am an inventor. I've done a lot of things. And I've just launched here in Oklahoma in Tulsa, the first multicultural uh, commission, uh, excuse me, multicultural conservative commission. Why? Because we can't find the minorities. So and so they asked me, why did you do it? And I'll tell you why, because we are welcome. We just have to go through some sort of orientation where we're accustomed to listening to the intelligence that comes from us beyond our skin, listening to ideas and ideology. I don't promote ang- the, uh, the hatred or the anxiety. I don't, I don't deal with that. I'm about making it happen. And I am, a, I am an ambassador. And that's what I do. 
I think that's fantastic. And I really like how you frame that in terms of how some people will focus on tokenism, but yeah, don't care about how you got here. Now you got to do the job because it's kind of one of those things, like even like, let's say it was nepotism. You work for some corporation and you were hired because you were someone's second cousin. Well, now you have the job. So now mm -hmm. you need to perform. You got to do, you got to do business in order to create business. Right. Uh, but you, you keep bringing up things that, that I want to kind of go into. So I love how this is going already, but if you were to directly advise the RNC, right? So they bring you in and we're, we're going to directly advise you because people always like to say Republicans need to quote unquote, reach out to communities of color, right? That they need to do this or they need to do that, but they're not always uh, clear on what, what exactly that means. It's like, well, what do you mean reach out? And what do you mean people of color? Like, why are you treating them as this homogenous group? Because I was even thinking this morning, Paula, as I was thinking about this interview, my sister and I grew up in the same house with the same parents and we couldn't be any different. So if somebody painted with a broad brush and said Thompson children, that would even seem a little bit odd. But when if you are advising Republicans that want to make inroads into those communities to, I guess, deepen or further some of the things that Trump was at least trying to do, what would you tell them to do? The first thing I would tell them to do is to come out of the Democrats' narrative about them. Okay. Because you don't realize how much what what the Republicans are doing now is all reflective, all defective, defective, because they don't want to, they're trying to live down someone else's opinion. When I was in school, I was bullied. I was the kid, I was like, you know, two inches tall. I weighed about a fifth of a pound and I was thrown everywhere. In order to stop that, I had to change my tactic because up until that point, I was always defensive and deflective, you know, you little this and whatever. And I learned something from that. I learned that as long as you tell people they're right about what they say, instead of redefining and redesigning your narrative, then you're always going to be catch up and you're always going to be um, on the defensive side. Now, having said that, one of the things that I would also say is get to know black people. Like I've been elected and I've been, they have been very open to me here. I've been invited to the, you know, the meetings and whatever, but nobody has yet in the big picture, I think two men have actually taken time to get to know me because, and so I'm always interacted with as by assumptions. There is assumption, there's a stigma, there's a narrative. It's, and I want to go on, I want to say this because I need you to hear me, Kyle. This is not because I feel like I'm, I'm mistreated or abused. I'm a pretty tough person and I too, I can stand on my own. What I'm saying is that if we're trying to make something work, then congeniality has to go beyond formality. And so far we're into, we're always locked in formality. Like uh, uh, if we if we say, if, when we're sitting at the table, case in point, I sit at the table at these meetings, there is this constant conversation of who these people are. Yeah, well, you know, John DeSosa, well, you know, he was there 25 years ago and on and on. And we're sitting there looking at them and say, so where do we fit? So I don't know if that's a drama that we, do, we have to go through or what, but learning us, knowing what we think, and then learning us to find out where the myth separates from the fact. There are a lot of myths that we do. And, and, and trust me, Republicans and white people are not the only ones. We have our own. Everybody has it. But if you ask me what I would say, I would say that. Secondly, I would love them to stop asking us to do more than pray. Yeah. Okay. Could we do a little bit more than pray? I have a very good mind and some strong thoughts on things that work. And I have almost 40 years of dealing with people. I have a little bit more to say than our father who art in heaven. The thing that's interesting about the, the prayer comment as well is there are times when all you can do is pray, but 
I, I don't know that there's a ton of those times because some people just want to pray because they're lazy. They don't yep. actually want to do anything themselves because, you know, you've heard the expression probably before, God can move mountains, but you got to bring a shovel. It's kind of one of those things that his sovereignty will reign, but at some point you've, you've got to act as well. And you said something else. Uh, I don't know if I should call you Paula or Dr. Price. Every time this Okay, I, I may just even make up a name for you, but Paul sounds pretty good. But uh, you, you mentioned personal narrative, right? And each of us have our own story and our own personal narrative. But a personal narrative that I feel like has been foisted upon the, as much as I hate the phrase, black community, if you will, is is victimhood. That they, they've been put down for this length of time and that in order for them to ascend, the entire system needs to be brought down, right? And so that that's kind of this, this Marxist communist type of idea. We need to attack the system because it's been oppressing people of any kind. So what are, what are your thoughts in terms of that for, for some of these folks that are in the black community that feel like they are a victim, no matter what they do, no matter what education they do, no matter what business they, they uh, send to, no matter how great their family operates, that no matter what they're a victim and they can't get ahead in America. Do you feel like, well, why does a story like that have teeth? Oh, I, I first of all, I 100% disagree with that. I don't think black people are any longer victims. I think we have to become better fighters. I think we have to become more strategic and more tactical. I think we need to go to the power schools, which is what some of them did, many of them did and changed their lives. But the whole victim narrative, that doesn't work for most of us. I'm sitting here talking to you. How victim is that, okay? So when we think about it, it really has to be us having, I, I, I think, less activists, more advocative and more ambassador, ambassadorial thought leaders. People who say, okay, this is what we had, this is where we were. We cannot tell this nation that they did nothing right by us ever. That is untrue. So we're going to have to want to get beyond our emotional steam and move into the truth that, yeah, but a lot more. But I mean, you look at television, you look at the, the billboards, you look at the whatever efforts have been made. Now, have we arrived? No, but then America hasn't you know, I always leave every conversation like this with this statement, Kyle. What is America without its skin? If we're not defined by skin color, then what are we? Now, why is that question important? Because it's important because we keep saying we want to deal with racism, but we have nothing to replace it with. And in life, if you don't deal, if you don't have a viable and more potent replacement, you're stuck in the stronghold. So my question or my statement is, number one, to answer you, I don't think that victimhood is, is, defines us any longer. We have people, you know, there are other reasons why people don't have jobs. You don't go to work, you don't eat, you, 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 don't, you don't want to get up on time. There are a whole lot of other reasons. So let's act like we understand we're dealing with the human element, the human condition. The second thing is I don't believe in one way or at all that the institutions should come down. I think we need to switch out the populations. We need to switch out the headship. We need to switch out the leadership and not allow them to even sit in those places until we sit down around the table and rethink the policies. Again, replacement. You know, in God, God's at work, and we, we miss it. God will not fix anything if there's no replacement. The thing that I find that's interesting about your comment is you don't get a melting pot without a, a plethora of different races. It's funny whenever people in America, especially on the left, they, they look at these other cultures and they say, well, look how non-racist Denmark is or this other Sweden or some other random country. And it's like, that's a homogenous culture. 
that's not a bunch of people from a bunch of different cultures that have come together to try to, you know, intermingle with one another. That's all people that come from the same, the same line. It's like, it's easier for them. And then when, when something happens like the Arab spring, the Arab spring and like a uh, Muslim population of Sweden goes up, all of a sudden there's cultural issues. It's like, yeah, because they've never had to deal with all these different disparate cultures at different times. So I think that, that that's an interesting thing as well. One thing that, that I'm curious about as well for you, as every time that I've heard you talk, and even now, you seem to have a really genuine and deep love for America. And the thing about it, though, is I've been reliably informed that America is the most racist and evil country that's ever existed. And so how could someone that looks like you love this place? Because I, I'm surrounded by people that don't look like me that love this place. People that are not from this country that have come here, came through the front door, and they absolutely love America for what it stands for. They're not ignoring any of the faults or any of the sinful things that we've done as a country, but as a whole, they're looking at, at America as a positive. You seem to have that same outlook. So just explain that to me. Well, I hope that on your broadcast, I can give you the answer that motivates me because it's the only one I have. And one of the reasons why I love America is, first of all, I just think the spirit of the land is absolutely amazing. Now, we may have to redress it a little bit and alter some things. But the bottom line is that America was founded by Jesus Christ and it's his nation. And he's the reason why we still survive with all of our flaws, all of our fits and faults. We are under the, the, the auspices and the power, the constitutional power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only answer I have. Hope it's okay. Now, why is why does it bother? I was raised in a very tough neighborhood. I had a very hard, you know, dealings with the whole race issue. But one of the things I found out, there is a point where every human being who pushes back and stands and, and fights through reaches where race can no longer define them and ultimately ceases to touch them in a damaging way. One thing that I feel like, and I've heard you say this and I've seen it written on your website as well. One of the things that I think helps inform your worldview and the way that you're discussing this is you've said things like go beyond feeling to thinking and, mm -hmm. you know, said another way, it's refuse to surrender your intelligence to your emotions. I feel like in our modern age, especially with my generation, millennials and younger emotions rule everything. So if you feel so strongly about something, that means you're right. And the louder you scream it, the more right that you become. So why is that seemingly a center point for you? Because I completely agree, but our modern, you know, era that we're living in doesn't seem to agree with that. They, they want to value emotions over intelligence. Why do you like the opposite? I like the opposite because emotions cannot be measured or contained and emotions can't be capped as we do it. I mean, to be honest with you, as long as you push feelings, then uh, then everybody wins or everybody loses and anybody can win. When you have to go head to head with people and start getting them to articulate intelligence to begin to give hard, hard facts and hard reasons for why they not only feel what they feel, but they have already filtered those feelings through their intelligence. Once you deal with that, you notice that takeover artists never want thinkers. They always want feelers. And so our, our country is under attack. And this strategy to bring us to this point had, has everything to do with what we thought, what we think, how we thought, how we think. Now it's about a feeling. And the reason that feelings work is because, well, people, feelings are spontaneous. You can, sp you can spark them on anything. But intelligence, you're going to have to work some to break somebody's thought line to go and to move past their mentality and their mindset.
Right. And feelings can't be wrong. Right. But, but intelligence can be, because if you've learned that two plus two equals seven, somebody can tell you that that's wrong. Right. And so mm-hmm. but if it's a feeling like, Oh, I like what two plus two means to me. Like, how could you disprove that? It's like disproving someone's opinion. But I feel like all this kind of crescendos to one of the main parts of our conversation today, which is going to be about critical race theory. So critical race theory, CRT is on a lot of people's brains, especially if they're thinking about what's being taught to their kids at school. And we'll get a little bit more into the education system in the U S here in just a little bit, but even just generically, what is critical race theory, your understanding of it, and why is it so potentially harmful to specifically our country? Well, you know, the bottom line is no lie is of the truth, and two lies will not bring a truth, right? That's bottom line. Critical race theory is a political expedience. What I do like about the name is that they got it by thinking critically. So if we're going to combat it, we're going to have to go back to critical thinking. But the bottom line is that it's, re, it, it's taking the effects of a what I like to call a very wobbly and very distasteful origin. Being a woman, I can say this because I'm going to use this analogy. And that is there are births that are horrible. You can, I mean, just harm there and baby comes out terrible. There is a, there are a lot of aftermath, but ultimately it's what happens that nurtures it along that determines the actual fabric and quality of that child's life. Now, having said that America was born and racism was at its root and it was on the table. Either we do race or the constitution. I mean, all of those things are real. Here's where I'm at. I'm at. We cannot pretend that we didn't face that over the years because we did. We cannot pretend that that Martin Luther King didn't come and make us look ourselves in the mirror and begin to break some things open. We cannot pretend that nothing was done. My issue with critical race theory and every other racial issue is that um, the minorities, we as minorities, black people in particular, we have got to stop saying nothing good was done. Because when you tell somebody who is trying to understand you that it's useless for them to understand you because they'll never get it right because they haven't, they're not going to give you their best. So one, taking it to critical race theory, rewriting the textbooks are not the answer. Correcting those is the answer, but rewriting the textbook. I have a uh, statement where I say, we don't have to rewrite our history to write our destiny. We don't have to write our past with error, with abuse, or any of those things. So that's one of the things that I feel about it. Second thing I think about critical race theory is I'm, I'm going to say, you know, I don't even know if I'm on the right show. You know, Kyle, you bring out stuff and people. Let's go. Let's go. I'm here for it. <laughs> because one of the things critical race theory has done, it has shown. If, if they would listen, it's shown black people how we could have fought our own racial issues. Because see, white people are like, you're not going to ruin my child. You're not going to kill my child. You're not going to redefine my child. You're not going to corrupt their, their image of themselves. You're not going to get away with that. We we cried. We were crying. We placards. We do all of that. But there's a great lesson to be learned for all of us. Number one, you all get to know what it's like to be on the other side. But a bigger lesson for us is that, hey, guys, we could have fought better. We could have been strong, stronger. We could have wanted to fix it. We could have stood for our children and stood for our generations because ultimately we did. Ultimately, we did do that. So when I think of critical race theory, I don't like it. And I don't like it for one reason, and that is its root. No no foul root is going to bring a good truth. And that's just not going to happen. And that's what I think critical race theory is, is, is sowing foul roots in our children. And my reason, of all the reasons, is that 
To what end? What type of citizen is critical race theory looking to produce in the future? What kind of politician, what kind of businessman, entrepreneur, educator, medical professional, what is the end product? We, we, uh, before we talk end game, what is the end product? Because education is the supreme stronghold of every society. Every society, nobody can get through, get through it, learn or grow without it. Absolutely. I want to dig a little bit more into that. But one thing that, that you that came to mind whenever you're talking at the beginning there is we seemingly have this inability in our modern you know, our modern day to hold two seemingly disparate thoughts at the same time. So you can say that it was absolutely sinful and horrific that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves and raped slaves like horrific things that he should pay for. And also that he wrote the Declaration of Independence, which was the document that ended up helping set the foundation to free the slaves, a document that Frederick Douglass felt like was one of the most important documents ever written. We can hold those two things at the same time. It doesn't have to just be either or. But I heard in another interview, you said something to the extent, you said it again just there, Paula, is to what end should our children be force-fed this material, this, mm-hmm. this critical race theory, the CRT material? And again, we can put on our tinfoil hats and speculate all day. We could put on our intellectual hats and, and kind of figure out. But in your opinion, why do you think it's it's happening this way? It seems like there is an agenda. It seems like there is a purpose. I don't feel like it's accidental that our children, young white kids, like, like my sons here within a few years are going to be told just because of how they look and the level of melanin in their skin, that they're an oppressor and responsible for racism that happened 250 years ago. And at the same time, somebody like one of my best friends and, and their child who happens to be a child of color, I guess you could say, they're going to be told that they're an oppressor regardless of the city they were born into or the family they were born into what's the agenda here? Like, what's the purpose of all this? Well, before I answer that, I want to go back to the Thomas Jefferson slave constitution thing. You know, for us to hold that over our nation's head is for us to say that he passed on those traits and those attributes and those uh, impulses genetically. So now, because otherwise what he did should have died with him. Like that cannot even be a stronghold. But by the same token, the constitution that he ratified, that he signed, uh, was prophetic. And it, it, whether he knew it or not, it was to look forward to a day when equality would define our nation and not uh, bigotry. That is what I wanted to get out. But now to answer your question, your, you know, what is that like? First of all, both sides are feeling both sides. I think America had gotten to the point, like, and I, I said it in my, my uh, discussion, gotten to the point that we stopped remembering what made us America. We stopped feeling for each other. We stopped fighting for the land. Like really critical race theory is not interested in the people that are affected who are going to be the tools, the instruments or the pawns. It's interested in an ideology that will fracture the land and leave it open and vulnerable for whatever uh, uh, whatever it takeover that it wants because the people don't matter in critical race theory people do not matter theory matters as a matter of fact they tell you that now yeah. when i started when i was researching it i found out that it started out as critical theory you know and i always tell people about um antonio Gramsci gramsci in 1915 he he gave a, a statement about socialism he called socialism is the only religion that would overwhelm christianity and if socialism is going to take over then it has to infiltrate schools churches families the media now this he said in 1915 we are now 2020 
two, and his words are working. And, and what he said they set out to do is what they did. So it has nothing to do with the children at all other than the children will be future citizens. The whole idea is this thing has gone back all the way to the 19th century and before that. Mm-hmm. And we are now, and so what they did, bringing it down the line, I guess they're trying to speed up the clock, they dropped the word race in the middle of critical theory. Just drop the word in there. So now, why is race expedient? Because it's very easy. Skin t- skin color does away with ID. You don't need an ID card if we're going to define everybody by the color of their skin. So they that was, again, critical. And I would like to say at that point, critical theory became political race theory. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And uh, it's funny because we, we talk about your emotions for a lot of people getting out in the way of their intelligence. A lot of people that even don't like CRT, they don't understand that it it comes downstream from critical legal studies, postmodernism, critical theory, the Frankfurt School, cultural hegemony, or hegemony rather, you know, conflict theory, all the way back to Karl Marx. And then there's people that Karl Marx read that, that got him to his level. But another thing that I think is interesting is you'll hear a lot of people say this, and this is typically people on the left that are trying to signal how virtue as they are. They will say, you know, I'm colorblind. I don't see race. But for me as a Christian, when I look in uh, into the eyes of someone that doesn't look like me, I'm like, what a wonderful thing that we have differences. I see race every time I look at people because with different races come different cultures and different uh, ways of worshiping the father and all these different things. Like I happen to love that. So when you hear people talk about, Hey, I'm going to be colorblind as, uh, as I look through things, I just, I look at it the opposite way. Am I crazy? Cause I feel like I love seeing people for who they are and for the history they come from. I think it's great. I think that people who say that um, consciously or unconsciously, they're saying it as an aspiration. It is very difficult to say and to live. See, to, it's easy to say, I don't see color, but how do you live? How do we live? We, it, it's easy to say, well, I just, I just see everybody the same until, for example, to just make, and I just did this statistic, but for example, when it comes to your child, your son or daughter bringing home someone of another color that is going to alter your stream, alter your genetics. Do you still see color? And they, I mean, do you, I mean, oh, we still talking about whether we can move down the street, not in my world, but thank God. But the point is that's an aspiration inspired by an internal dislike for what's going on. But to me, a very narrow, uh, a narrow perspective on the solution. You have to see color. If I mean, if I'm going to get like, give birth to babies, I got 15 babies. I'm going to have to write the color of the babies. That's important. If a cop is going to stop you for uh, speeding, they have to somehow or another identify you if you flee and get away. When you go to get medication, our genetics are different because when you go to get medication, there are certain things that are specific to one color or one race or another. So that's a nice aspiration that's based on an ideology we wish could happen. But we have a long way to go before we say we don't see color. I often tell people I see color. I'm not driven by it. I'm not Mm -hmm. goaded by the colors that I see. I see color. You're black. I love it. That's great. He's black. God is great. Now, why are we together? I see color. You're white. It's wonderful. But we have to stop saying that we're blind because that makes it uh, our psyche has to work too hard to enforce that. 
Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with people, again, trying to virtue signal and say how virtuous they are. But there's also around this entire issue of race in America and critical race theory, there's a lot of gaslighting that goes on. So uh, we're being gaslighted by people almost entirely from the political left. And when they say that, you know, things like critical race theory isn't being taught in school, or what are you crazy? They say that Republicans are just making it up, that parents are, are freaking out over nothing. So for you, obviously being an elected official, you know, being in the Republican Party and seeing these things, seeing what happened in the state of Virginia, you know, an entire race basically being swung by some of the issues that were occurring in the schools. When mm-hmm. you hear people say things like, oh, critical race theory isn't happening. We're not actually teaching this to your children. What would you say to people that are propagating a message like that? Well, I went through a, uh, I guess I'd call it a seminar or something where a woman, a former superintendent of schools did a whole deep dive study on critical race theory. And one thing that I walked away with in, from that is that it has a lot of synonyms it, and, and it keeps morphing itself by its synonyms. So when, when we start beating that animal, then it comes up and it, it renames itself and maybe reinvents itself. So for them to say that it's not happening, we'd have to look at all of the synonyms, you know, like, you know, the whole emotional thing that, that they're teaching, you know, the emotional part of it. Now, that's not critical race. Yes, it is, because you're still telling kids how to feel about their neighbor. You're still telling children how to react this way or that way in the classroom. So I would encourage everybody, do your homework and look at all of the synonyms it's come up with since it's come under attack, because it's those synonyms that they're hiding behind. Now, we don't really teach that. And then when you start asking for the curricula, you start asking for the goals, the syllabus, the agenda, you realize that it's just lacquered with different names or different verbiage. And I think that's where parents, because, you know, the reason why Undaunted Life is here is we're equipping men to push back darkness, but a lot of men don't know where to look for darkness. And so they're shocked when they see this, you know, pornographic book that's in the library uh, for, at their elementary school. But it's like, dad, you probably should have asked for a list at some point of what what books were in the school and done a little bit of research. Like, I, I don't think that ignorance is really the issue for that. And I've heard you say this as well in a previous interview, that America has a long history of fighting for its children. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of what we're talking about day that t- today comes back to this because we hope, cause you know, you're not only a mother, you're a grandmother, like I'm a father and you know, Lord willing, I'll, I'll have another child here on this planet here very soon. And that's to, that's why I'm a conservative mm-hmm. because I want there to be a world that is, I want there to be an America that is positive for my sons. And I'm sure you want that for your daughters, for your grandchildren and all that. But when you say something like America has a long history of fighting for its children, how do we make sure that that continues? Because I see a lot of malaise. I see a lot of laziness coming from parents. I see parents that are willing to just, ah, you know, throw up their hands and uh, you say, I guess we can't do anything and go back to playing video games or go back to scrolling through Instagram. How can we ensure that parents will continue that fight? I think that, and I pray for parents because I think that this generation of parentage and the one before it have gotten a lousy bill of goods. Parents no longer know what it is to be a parent because this assault was able to work because they redefined parenthood and then redefined parenting. So, you know, we're going to let the kid make the decisions. We're going to take our hands off of this and we're not going to go in their rooms and we're not going to violate their privacy. Are you kidding? When we came up, no, 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 you don't have, I bought your privacy. You don't have, I pay every month to breach your privacy. That's what I do every single month. And so that's it. But I think that 
if we got, we're going to have to go back to something as basic as as quality parenting. Now, and I want to make a statement that you just made about conservatism. You know, when I got elected, I did a lot. I went to a prototypical, I call archetypical research of the word conservative. And I, I understood once I dug it up, I understood it more than ever that that is the conservative. Conservative means to protect, to guard, to take care of what's in existence, to make sure that harm does not violate the purposes and the destiny. To be a conservative is what everybody agrees with if they understood the word outside of its political campaign uh, lingo. Because to be a conservative is to be a potent and powerful thing. And so when I once I got that, I was a, that's how I started with this uh, organization that I founded. So if you ask me where to start, if you don't deal with the, the parent, what you do to the kids is going to go to whoever does it best. And that's where we are today. So the opposers of parents, the, the adversaries of our country, they did a better job of nurturing and converting our children than we did of nurturing and developing them ourselves. Why? Because they had them six hours a day. We did not care. I mean, we should have had a problem when they said we don't do homework any longer. Then when they start saying we don't do math any longer, see, but parents don't know they can get into that because these people are not treating parents poorly, Kyle, right now, mm -hmm. simply because they have the upper hand. They are actually reinforcing what they conquered. And we have to go back now and reconquer our children, our right to define our children and our right to determine how they are going to become future citizens of our land. So I guess from a pragmatic side, let's come out of the world of philosophy a little bit. What is your message to parents that are concerned about what's being taught in their public schools? Maybe they don't have the ability or don't think they have the ability to homeschool. And I don't know that's necessarily what you're advocating for, even though I'm sure you're a fan of homeschool, because I know some people that have just taken their kids completely out of the system. But then I do inherently worry about those children when they do go to university when they're 18 or 19 years old. If, you know, their their gym teacher was mom and, and their math teacher was mom and their science teacher was dad. I, I have some concerns uh, about that whole lifestyle, but at the same time, there is that fear that six to you know eight hours a day you're spending with these state employees that have a very you know unilateral way of thinking. What's your message to parents about how they can take back their rights as parents, even if they don't literally have the capability, maybe because of their job or something else, to just be with them 24-7? First of all, I think it's terrible that the child's only authority figure is the parent. I disagree with that 100%. Community parenting is how I grew up, and I know that's how you like. I could get whooped by someone's grandma two streets over if they saw me get doing something. You know what I mean? And no, and by the time you got home, your mama knew it. Oh, it was bad. It was bad every time. You have to, you know. Yeah. But I don't agree with the parent being the sole authority or the sole public figure of the child in their life. I disagree with that. And while I have severe issues about public school, I think the middle of the road solution would probably be that all of these other schools that are coming together, they need to create their own superintendency. They need to create their own council of education. So if this, if you're in a city and you have, you know, the parents don't want to do public school or can't, then, and, and this one is doing it at the church and someone else is doing it at the, in the gym, someplace else, all of that. I think we need to come together for the replacement, because I'm, I'm big on that, for the replacement educational council and superintendency of the schools that are, of the alternative schools that want to, again, I would like to think, feed back into the public school system once we can 
pull all of those, all of the, the adversaries and all of the other agendas out of the way. So if case in point, if we're talking about in Tulsa, okay, well, we've got this one's doing it, that one's doing it, but let's not add to the problem by fragmenting it. Let's find out how to come together, come up with what we know is wholesome and health, healthy, which is probably just going to be education 50 years ago, but come yeah. up with what is wholesome and healthy and let's, as a collective, let's show our strength. Right now, they're not worried about us because we're scattered all over the place. But when you start showing as a collective, now that muscle has got to be dealt with. So that's one of the things that I would do. And it would take parents who would start saying, we want this. Who is it that we do? We, I mean, it's great to say that this wonderful Christian guy is running for state superintendent of schools. But the bottom line is not a whole lot is going to get done by that person unless everything else goes with him. In that right. position. Yeah, there's so much bureaucracy, you have to have a tidal wave. But we saw that, Paula. We saw that in Virginia with the gubernatorial yes, race with Glenn Youngkin because Glenn Youngkin could have got should have gotten skunked because Virginia used to be a solidly red state. They said it was going to turn purple. It skipped purple and went to solidly blue. <laughs> and then all of the sudden, we see these things happen in schools. We see the we see the rapes, we see the critical race theory things that have happened, some of the transgender issues, and all of a sudden the parents said, No more. And a lot of these parents were registered Democrats, but they were more towards the center. They weren't, you know, super left wing Bernie Sanders, AOC type people. They were just people trying to work a job and, and raise their families. But Republicans and Glenn Youngkin specifically, he decided to play into that, whether you, you thought he was taking advantage of it or if it was just kind of the, the culture of the time. Do Republicans need to focus on becoming the party of parents? Because seemingly the, the, the Democratic Party was the party of parents seemingly by default. But yeah. now we see this, especially going into the 2022 midterms. It looks like Democrats are going to get skunked and it looks like the people doing the skunking is going to be parents. Do Republicans need to really, really drive that home now? I oh, Absolutely. Well, let's get real. Who gave the public school their students? Parents. Yeah. Parents, we, the parent, handed over our students to the public school system. And then, but the thing we forgot to do is watch our win. One of the things that we have to do as America of the future is begin to watch our successes, guard and steward our wins. So, and not just say, it's over. Well, I'm glad that's over. That's how I don't have to do that any longer. Yeah. So that's one of the things I do know that if you if you're going to fight for children, if you're going after the parents and raising parents, not only awareness and, and concern, but their confidence in parenting their children to adulthood in a wholesome and healthy environment. Yeah, you're going to have to make children a priority because right now everything else is kind of like after the fact. It's kind of like byproduct, because what did they say? They said, we want your children. We came after your children. And what did we do? We neutralize your parenting to get your children. And that is what we did. So now if we're going to be strong, if we're going to do anything, we're going to have to arouse those parents parental instinct, that mo that mother, father guardianship, we have to really arouse that and let them know it is okay to be a parent because a lot of what they allow their children to do, the, the Democratic Party and the public school system put it in their kids to force their parents to do it. 
Hey, and what a lot of these people found out in the Virginia gubernatorial race and in the upcoming midterms is that sometimes when you poke a bear, it's a mama bear or it's a papa bear. And they're not really, uh, they're not really excited about how close you're getting to their cubs. But that I, I do want to kind of take a, take a left turn here as we kind of wind towards the end. I want to talk about fatherhood a little bit because one thing that I focus a lot on, on my podcast and now that I am a father and almost everyone that listens to this podcast is a father is the fatherlessness issue in America is an insane epidemic. And I mean that across racial lines. So if we go back 50 years, fatherlessness in the black community was about 30%. Now it's like 70%. In the Hispanic community, it was like 15%. Now it's 50%. In the white community, it was like 30%, 3%. Now it's 30%. We're seeing these exponential growths in single motherhood and, and these you know, kids growing up without their biological father or any father of any kind inside the household and every bit of data we see, just when there's a father figure around, even if he sucks, even if he's not even good at it, you know, their graduation rates go up, crime goes down, you know, uh, pregnancy before marriage goes down, all these other different issues, you know, education goes up. What do you see as the biggest fallout from the fatherlessness issue that we're having in this country? And I know it's too big of a topic to break down in a short few minute answer, but what can we do to help mitigate that? Well, the first thing that I would say is the, the root cause is promiscuity. If it's easy, yeah. if it's that easy to get a base of primal pleasure satisfied with no strings attached, why tie yourself to anything? That's number yeah. one. So the promiscuity was already difficult because men were free, and I'm just using historical facts, nothing opinionated like that. But then women decided, we took away that whole that whole restriction, we put them on a pill. So now we can date whom we want. We moved from there to social media, we moved from there to the dating game, which used to be let's do dinner, and now this dating actually means something else. So we're going to have to deal with culture. We're going to have to deal with the, the, the cultural liberties that we unleashed, that we saw no real consequences for, because when it's all said and done, it's the children that suffers. It's the kid. And the father can walk away a lot easier than the mother. Because most times the father, if, he, if, if you were just meant to be a one night stand, they're not even going to know they have a kid. And if they do, it's not my problem. You should have taken care of yourself. So we have to deal with culture. If you ask me what the answer is, we're going to have to decide if we want to put Pandora back in her box. Yeah, uh, I think it's astonishing where we've gotten to as a culture, because for, for me personally, I'm one of those weirdos that has had one sexual partner his whole life. And I'm, and I married her. Like it's my wife. Like that's kind of my thing, but you're right. These kids and also pornography is pervasive in culture. I mean, pornography, when I was growing up a kid versus now, whenever you have parents that are putting an unlocked iPhone in the hands of their seven or eight year old and trusting, Hey, don't look at any murders. Don't look at any rapes. Don't look at any hardcore pornography. It's like these parents, again, you, what you're talking about earlier, they're like, Oh, I don't want to violate my kids and I don't want to violate their privacy. It's like, man, I grew up in an era where if my parents thought I was doing something behind the door that I shouldn't been, they would have taken the door off the hinges, right? And throwed it in the garage until they figured they could trust me at some point. But now here I'm going off on a tangent now, and this is not the point of today's interview, but let me go ahead and bring it to really the last question I have for you for today. So again, we talked about you have daughters, you have grandchildren. I focus a lot on sons and sonship and, and rites of passage, bringing you know young men and ushering them from boyhood into manhood. Because I have two sons, like that, that's a big deal for me personally. 
but I want you to give a message to the fathers listening to this that have daughters, okay? So I don't understand that because I don't myself have daughters. You do have daughters. You're a daughter yourself. So if you could give a message to my listeners that have daughters about things that they can do to ensure that they are a good and positive father to their daughter, what would you say to them? That's a good question for me. I teach it in the churches and the meetings I have. The first thing I would say to you, Dad, is stop thinking that your daughter does not need you or that your presence and what you admit as as her father doesn't matter. The second thing I'd like you to do is to stop thinking that anybody should make her happy, that she needs a boyfriend just so she can feel a touch. A lot of girls go into sexual relationships, not because they like the sex, but because they like the touch. And if dad would do that, then they would not have that hunger. Um, if the holidays, take your daughter out. You talk all the time about men. Yeah, me and my, my son, we went to the game and whatever. But don't assume that your daughter doesn't like your company. And and trust me, it doesn't make a difference if they pick at you and all of that. Sometimes they pick at you because they're they're just uh, you're funny. Other times they just pick at you because that's their pet way of showing their love. Make sure that your daughter has your time and attention. Take your daughter out to dinner so that she doesn't have to need to date everything to get some company. Talk to her. And when it comes time for her to start having feelings about boyfriends or whatever, do everything you can, dad and mom, but give your child the identity. One of the things scripture teaches with beyond a shadow of doubt, if you look for it, it teaches it all the time. Your seed is the best thing you have to give to the world. You have got to realize that when that seed stops being in you and it becomes a, pe- a person, particularly a girl, you, you have to realize that culture, culture just not, they don't really think about girls. Can I say this, Kyle, quickly, just to give yeah. you a point? Um, we had a women's meeting just to show you how religion feeds into fathers being unable to father their daughters. Um, but we had a, a women's meeting and we were talking about how important women were. We had a 12 year old who asked the question that broke my heart and I hope the fathers hear it. She said, Dr. Price, why doesn't God like girls? I said, well, honey, why are you saying that? She said, because my dad told me that girls are not in heaven and God doesn't like girls. And that's why girls can't do anything in the church. Now think about that psyche. Cause that's, that's hundreds of years. So you have to break the rules. If you are a leader in your church, stop letting them have gender bias. Stop letting them treat your daughter as if she's less than the sons you gave birth to. And then the last thing is when it comes to celebrations or whatever, tell your daughter that she looks good. Because if you don't, nine times out of 10, she's been in class saying nobody likes her. And she'll say, oh, dad, that's just you. But you are the one voice that keeps her hope alive. So if you ask me, Kyle, what I would do, I would say, Father your daughters as well as your sons and make sure your daughters have their own special time with their dads. I think that's great. And it's so beautiful when you see a dad that has that deep and abiding love for their daughter and beyond laying their life down for them. Because most dads, I think, would lay their lives down for their family. But that's something you do one time. But sacrificing yourself every single day to the betterment of another human being, that's dying every day, multiple times a day. You know what I mean? So it's a, it's a big deal. So I appreciate that word. And that's a great place to leave it. We've talked about a lot, a lot of things. We've covered a lot of ground in this discussion, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I am just, I'm happy about having done this. I enjoyed our time together, Kyle, and I pray that it's a blessing for you and your audience. It certainly has been for me and I'm sure for them as well. Dr. Paula Price, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you. God bless.
There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Dr. Paula Price. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the only link I've got for you today is the link to Paula's website, so you can go and check her out there. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We really do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we want to also thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.